Okay, our second speaker uh, today is Craig Lee, who's a physical oceanographer coming to us from the University of Washington. Uh, I'm thrilled to have Craig here. He does some pretty inspirational research uh, in the ocean, which combines uh, very high quality measurements and observations in the ocean with really deep physical insight into the different processes that are happening. Uh, his research group focuses on three different aspects. Uh, they are uh, upper ocean processes, mostly mesoscale and submesoscale. Uh, they are high latitude dynamics, and then physical biological interaction. So all three of those really talk directly uh, to this program. He's involved in a lot of instrument development, ocean gliders, toad instruments, lightweight moorings. And so it's perfect to have Craig here, and we're also actually extremely lucky to have Craig here. Uh, a couple days ago, he was up in Davis Strait and has uh, done a very long route back to us, arriving at 1 in the morning yesterday. So uh, be very kind to Craig, and thank you for having him here. Okay, well, uh, thank you for having me here. I'm really excited to be here this week. It sounds like it's going to be a, a very interesting set of conversations. And hopefully I'll manage to uh, give you a semi-coherent overview of at least a random walk through some of the physical controls on um, biogeochemical and, and biological cycling, things that affect the carbon cycle. So when we think about the ocean's role in the carbon cycle um, and what, what the, the physical processes that might influence are, I think about things like nutrient supply, right? Mixing nutrients tend to be stored deep. They tend to be used in the shallow regions. How do we get the nutrients into the, into the surface layer? Light. This all starts with phytoplankton. The, the phytoplankton need light to grow. How do we retain phytoplankton in the, in the photic zone, in the lit layer? The issues of export, things that fall out of the surface layer and presumably flux carbon down into the, into the deep ocean, how that's controlled. Encounter rates, if we get down to small scales, how turbulence affects encounter rates between predators and prey in the ocean, and issues of community structure. The actual circulation does have a governing effect on what kind of community structures take place. So what I'd like to do is start out by a, by a quick discussion of CERB's critical depth hypothesis. This is something that, that's kind of guide a lot of our thinking about how phytoplankton blooms occur in the ocean. And interestingly, interestingly in the past few years, we've been seeing um, some new ideas about how that might work. I'll talk a little bit about large-scale circulation and the influences therein, mesoscale pumping, and then uh, get onward to submesoscale dynamics, which are really a, a very vibrant area of research right now, um, both in physical oceanography and reaching out into the, in the biogeochemistry and the biology. So to start with, first sort of critical depth hypothesis. Um, this is the idea that in, in an upper ocean, this is depth. This is essentially a phytoplankton production or a respiration rate on this scale. And in the surface layer, we typically have a well-mixed region that's turbulent. So particles in this region are, are exchanging continuously. Um, during the winter, that, re that region can be quite deep, deep enough that particles that are moving through the region aren't exposed to light through their whole excursion. And as we come into spring or summer, the stratification sets in, and then they're, they're trapped up in the shallow layer. So the, the guiding thought here is that essentially you have phytoplankton, which like to have light to grow, so they have a production rate. And you have what's right up called respiration, which actually, in, in his terminology, included grazing, the consumption of phytoplankton by zooplankton, sinking, all the other terms that I'm, whoops, a misspelling there, that might be involved in, in essentially phytoplankton mortality. And the idea is that 
during the winter, the, the phytoplankton production rate is, is rather low because they're not seeing much light, both because in the northern latitudes where this hypothesis was developed, there just isn't much light. In some areas, there's none at all. And because the mixed layer is very deep, so they're not spending much time in the surface layer. And during that period, the, the respiration rate exceeds the, the growth rate, and so you don't see a bloom. When the mixed layer shallows, when it shoals, the phytoplankton are trapped close to the light. At the same time, your spring is coming on, there's more light anyway. At some point, the production rate exceeds the, the respiration rate, and you see the, the phytoplankton bloom. So this was a fairly simple explanation, very powerful. Simply relied on the, the onset of stratification and the, uh, the increase in light. There's some things it doesn't explain well. It doesn't explain the kind of patchiness we see in the, in the phytoplankton. And in particular, it doesn't explain some of the observations of, of deep phytoplankton blooms. Right, blooms that are occurring when the mixed layer is rather deep. I just threw this in here just to, uh, is a, an illustration of how we think about these things. If this is time, progressing from the winter into the spring, the sort of classic straight-up explanation is this kind of smooth transition, mixing layer depth where you have deep to shallow, the trajectory of phytoplankton goes shallow, this is the critical depth, when you cross, you get the bloom, and you get this biological pump that's, that's essentially carbon falling out of the bloom. If we go to time variable mixing, which is, of course, a more realistic version of what's actually happening out there, we get this, plus we get a mixed layer pump where you have mixed layer deepening, right? The bloom is now occurring in fits and starts. It shoals, it deepens. Some of the particles get trapped below the mixed layer when that happens or are lost. So in this case, you get less biomass overall, but longer bloom, more production, and more export. So that's just the temporal variability now. We're not, not talking about anything else, just um, temporal variability and mixed layer deepening. So next I'd like to talk about two different, uh, two different takes on why these things happen, why we see deep blooms, and, and what, might, uh, what might not quite be right about the critical depth hypothesis. This is work that was done by Mark Berenfeld fairly recently. And what he did was he looked at um, the decoupling of phytoplankton growth and grazing um, due, due to the, the DP in the mixed layer. And this was um, basically inspired by observations that he had here, remote sensing. This is a chlorophyll estimated from sea whiffs, mixed layer depth essentially from a model, um, many years of data here that you see, and then photosynthetically available light radiation. And what you see is, you know, the chlorophyll concentrations go up as a measure of phytoplankton standing stock, and they go down. They seem to peak around the time of the, the mixed layer shoals, which is consistent with the critical depth hypothesis. But they're growing all through the winter, right? These, th these things are not just coming up during the spring, but that, that growth rate is occurring throughout the winter. So that's not, uh, not quite consistent with what we, with critical depth hypothesis. Um, this, keep in mind that this is an area that has sunlight all year round. You go a little bit further north, there's not enough light to do this. And so the critical depth hypothesis may, may play a, may, may have a stronger explanatory power in that, that region. So essentially the, the thinking here is that when you, when you have, this, this is the, now we're looking at just the, um, just the, the, the net phytoplankton growth rate as opposed to the phytoplankton standing stock, the actual net rate of growth of phytoplankton, plotted on top of par here. Um, and mixed layer depth. Da, da, da. In the, the dark black line. 
So what you're seeing here is that, um, again, the, uh, the, net, the net growth rate of the phytoplankton actually isn't tracking the shoaling of the mixed layer. The net growth rate actually peaks during the winter, typically, during the time when the mixed layers are quite deep. And it decreases during the time when the mixed layer shoals. And the explanation that we've got here is that essentially when you, you see this mixed layer deepening, this is the 1% light layer. You see the net growth rate here. Again, like I said, it, it's rather, uh, rather low during the time when the mixed layer is shallow and high when the mixed layer is deep. And the thinking is that when the mixed layer deepens, you get a decoupling of the grazers from the, from the, the net production. During the time when the mixed layer is shallow, the phytoplankton are trapped in a fairly shallow layer. They're being grazed rather heavily. And so the grazers are very efficient at knocking down the, uh, knocking down the growth. But when the mixed layer deepens, the grazers aren't as efficient. The phytoplankton get away from them, and you see a, a larger growth rate during the winter period. So again, you see this here, this, this period when the net growth is, uh, is coupled, is um, tightly coupled with the grazing, and then a period when it's decoupled during the winter, and then a recoupling once the, uh, once the mixed layer is shoal. So that's one, one take on changes in the, uh, in the critical depth hypothesis, and this is another, and this is work done by Taylor and Ferrari, again, fairly recent. Um, here they've got plotted the essentially the loss rate against the growth rate, an idealization into a two-layer model where you've got losses low, net loss low and net growth shallow. And the thinking here is that if, if you think about a, a mixed layer, a very deep mixed layer, and a mixing layer, which is somewhat different from the mixed layer, the mixing layer is the area where you have active turbulence. Um, the, active tur the actively turbulent layer doesn't need to extend to the bottom of the mixed layer. If you have fairly weak turbulence, it may actually leave long residence times in the euphotic zone. So if you think about very active turbulence where things are overturning very rapidly, particles cycle really rapidly through that layer, um, they're not spending much time in any one place. If you think about fairly weak turbulence, they're sort of lazily turning up and down, and they actually spend quite a bit of time, say in the sunlit layer, in the shallow layer. Um, they spend a bit of time here too, though. But if, uh, if the time scales are slow enough for that overturning, you can actually get significant growth in this layer, despite the fact that the mixed layers are deep. And here what they've got plotted is the, the mixing layer depth. Um, a little confusing, this is very shallow, this is very deep, and this is uh, net surface heat flux. Essentially, it's a, a way of thinking about, say, convective overturning during the winter. So this is, uh, this is when the convective overturning is quite strong on this end, log scale, and this is when it's quite weak. And this is an area that's indicating uh, decaying and growing phytoplankton stocks. And what you see is when you have fast overturning, it's difficult to get growth, right? The phytoplankton are decaying through this whole period because they're cycling out of the, they're spending a lot of time in the area that's not lit. When you've got very slow overturning, despite the fact that you might have deep mixed layers, they're still spending enough time inside the lit zone to, to grow. And so you see growth even though you've got very deep, very deep mixed layers. This is just a, a plot of phytoplankton concentration. Um, again, with a normalized depth and the different lines or the solids are for, for very weak 
net surface heat loss, so very little overturning. The, uh, the dash lines for much stronger net surface heat loss so for strong convection. Again, what you see is you know, significant potoplanta concentration shallow in the weak case and, uh, and not much in the strong case. So another, another take on, on that critical depth hypothesis and how these things might work. Um, I'll, give, I'll give you another take on this later in the talk when we start to discuss submesoscale effects. But since we're on mixing, um, and this will be the only slide about this, but, but there, there are a number of other impacts that the turbulence has on, on, a, on ocean carbon cycle. And, and some of those, well, this is, this is a plot from P.U. Mars and Lee Carbas. And this is um, relative selling or rising speed. It's, it's actually um, constrained to be positive, so you can't tell whether it's sinking or rising here. One is, is essentially uh, no difference between turbulent and non-turbulent environments. And uh, greater than one is, is things that are rising or sinking faster than they would without the mixing, and, and less than one are things that are sinking or rising slower than they would without the turbulence. And this is the relative turbulence strength. And what you see is that as you, as you increase the turbulence strength, um, many things rise or sink more slowly than they would have without the turbulence. At, uh, at, at high strength, some things actually uh, move a little bit faster than they would have. So that's uh, an effect on, on the sinking rates of particulates. But the turbulence also affects aggregate formation. Um, essentially, with, with the right amount of mixing, you get faster encounter rates, so things tend to aggregate a little more rapidly. And this is how we get things out of the, out of the mix layer, aggregation sinking. So if you have more turbulence, you can aggregate a little bit better. Maybe you get a more efficient sinking out of the mix layer. And then the, the turbulence also increases predator-prey encounter rates. So you can get more efficient grazing with the turbulence. So the, these are some of the small-scale effects that mixing has. So if we go to a, a, a completely different scale, and these, these are more of the scales that, that Doug was talking about. Um, and, and he's already said a lot of this. I'll, I'll move fairly quickly through these pieces. This is, um, these are plots for, from um, Serpa Hakkinen and Peter Rines, and also from Shaman Hatun and the Pharaohs. And what they're showing here is uh, an increased penetration of the subtropical gyre into the north and a shrinking subpolar gyre. These are, uh, these are drifter tracks from 91 to 95. They're five-year intervals going out to 2003 to 2007. Um, not quite five-year intervals, I guess. And what you see is that uh, the, the, the cyan or, or drifters that are entering in this subtropical box and the, the uh, magenta colors or drifters that are exiting that box but the thing I want you to notice is that here, things are fairly constrained. They're not really straying very far, the drifters, into the, into the subpolar gyre, not really penetrating at the, in the Nordic seas. And as you move down in time towards where we are today, we're seeing increasing penetration of the subtropical waters into the subpolar seas. With that comes more stratification. With that comes higher salinities, higher temperatures. Um, these are plots of, of salinity anomaly against uh, an estimate of, of gyre, subpolar gyre strength um, observed in the, the dark black line and modeled in the dashed line. And what you see is the weakening of the subpolar gyre, increase in salinity. As I said, with that comes the, the stratification and the, uh, the increase in temperatures, which is really driving the, the increase in stratification. And this is just a, an attempt by Shalmar to extend that data set um, by, by 
using the fact that the model and the observations agree to take the, take the time series backwards in time using the model. But essentially, that penetration of, of subtropical water potentially slows the, the overturn circulation a bit. It certainly slows the ventilation. Um, it changes the sea surface temperature, so we've got warmer sea surface temperatures. With that, this is a observation uh, results from Schuster and Watson in 2007. And Doug showed something more recent from 2013. I actually haven't, uh, haven't seen yet. But in, in this paper, what they're showing here is in the, the subpolar and in the subtropics. Um, this is PCO2. And you see a, a decrease in PCO2 in both regions. And in particular, in the subpolar region, you see a, a decrease in the seasonality. So we've gone from having a, a bit of a seasonal cycle here to having not much of a seasonal cycle at all in the subpolar regions. And if we look at CO2 uptake between 94 and 95 and 2002, 2005, we see a decrease in, C in CO2 uptake in the subpolar regions associated with this, this increasing penetration of subtropical waters and decreased ventilation. So these are large-scale circulation effects on the carbon cycle, things you actually need to, you need to understand the, the large-scale circulation. We need the ability to actually model it well make predictions of how this is, going to, uh, this is going to evolve. Slightly smaller scales, um, this is mesoscale pumping, pumping my mesoscale eddies. That's been a, a focus of, of a lot of research. And I'll, I'll apologize up front. You notice I'm, I'm not giving you a long list of references. Typically, I've only got one here. There are typically dozens for any of these, lots of people working in these fields. And I, I don't mean to, to short anybody credit for these things. But, uh, but the, the we we'll look at the, the role of mesoscale eddies in, 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 a, in the carbon cycle. It's been a fairly active area for quite a while. Spurred by the idea that the, the geochemical estimates of new production are, are much larger than what we think we could get from the, uh, from the nutrient supply that you estimate from wintertime convection. So there's been this outstanding question of, of where do the rest of the nutrients come from? And one of the thoughts was, well, maybe that comes from pumping by mesoscale eddies. And the, the explanation goes something like this. If you've got anticyclonic eddies, which is kind of a dip in the ice pickles, cyclonic eddies, the dip in the ice pickles represent a, a kind of downwelling, whereas uh, the, the domain of the ice pickles and a cyclonic eddy represents a kind of upwelling. And that upwelling potentially brings nutrients closer to the surface, making them available to the phytoplankton. So this is essentially a way to pump nutrients to the surface by either evolving a cyclonic A's or cyclonic A's or propagating through an area. Um, these are measurements from a dense McGillicuddy of a section through a, through a cyclonic eddy. Temperature, uh, nitrate, chlorophyll, and, uh, and beam C. And what you see, that this is, this is temperature. If you were looking at the ice pickles, they would be doming upwards, right? So this is something that, uh, that's bringing denser waters closer to the surface presumably nutrient-rich waters. And you see that in the nitrate through this section, increasing chlorophyll concentrations and, uh, and decreasing light transmission, so more particles. But looking at this, it looks like mesoscale pumping might account for about 30% of the shortfall. So the next question is what accounts for the rest of that? If we look at MODIS, this is our remote sensing. Temperature in this panel, chlorophyll in that panel. You see these beautiful features that, that, that are really ubiquitous in a lot of the remote sensing, right? Lots of filaments, lots of eddies. You see these hot spots in the middle of eddies, kind of like 
what drove, uh, what motivated a lot of the research into the mesoscale ID pumping, that the, the centers of these eddies might be productive. But, um, but also what we see is the edges tend to be hot spots as well, right? You see the edges painted out and enhanced chlorophyll concentration. And quite often, if we, if we look at the remote sensing, what we see are very small scale features, not 100 meters in most remote sensing, it doesn't resolve that. But you see features that are much smaller than the kinds of tens, of or, hundred, tens or hundreds of kilometer mesoscale eddies that inhabit the edges of these eddies. They also inhabit the, the edges of boundary currents, western boundary currents, strong frontal regions. And these are the submesoscales. Um, very, very active area of research right now in, in physical oceanography. Um, interestingly, largely led by, by theory and modeling. Uh, we observationalists are scrambling to catch up with what the theoreticians are pointing us at. But that's been a, a very, very fruitful collaboration. Um, from a physical standpoint, we're very interested in this because the submesoscale dynamics are a bridge. And they're a bridge from large-scale circulation um, in mesoscale down to the dissipative scales. So without the submesoscale, what we see is we have this forward cascade from large-scale down to mesoscale eddies. But then those eddies coalesce and they come back into the large scale. So rather than feeding energy down to the dissipative scales, they feed back up again to the, uh, to the large-scale circulation. The submesoscales actually give us a way to extract energy from that large-scale circulation from the mesoscale and bring it down into the dissipative scales. So it's a, a very critical thing for, for the physics. Um, it's an interesting thing for the biology and the biochemistry because it's a very efficient way of driving vertical exchange. That exchange typically happens along isopycnals, but it tends to be very vigorous. It's a way of driving stratification. You can create stratification very, very rapidly. And I'll show you an example of that in a moment. Um, at the moment, the simulations are possible at, at fairly constrained spatial scales. We can do things up to about you know, sort of reasonable size regions. But any sort of global representation of these features has to be done by, through parameterization. So there's been a lot of work trying to understand how to parameterize these features. These are a couple of plots from Mariana Levy. Um, essentially, this is, this is MODIS again, these very nice pictures. And just to, to give you an example, these are GLADAR observations underneath that MODIS image to show you that the, the kinds of features that we see in the, the sea surface actually extend in, into depth and are actually sometimes richer at depth than they are at the sea surface. And if we look at the, the kinds of effects that we think the submesoscale have, um, two things, there, there's advection. This is sort of a isopycnal advection of nutrients, right, that they can bring nutrients upward along isopycnals into the, into the surface layer, into the euphotic zone. It can also flux things down, so it can carry part, particles phytoplankton nutrients down out of the euphotic zone into the ocean interior. Um, the other thing it does is it, it governs vertical mixing and stratification. You get fairly shallow stratification, typically at the front itself. Um, and it can, can fairly dramatically modulate the mixing that you see in and around these areas. So two things that we, we worry about a fair bit, both from the, uh, the physical standpoint and from the biogeochemical standpoint. This is an um, example of some regional simulations that Mariana has done. This is a kind of meant to, to represent, say, the, uh, the North Atlantic around the Gulf Stream separation or, or the Western Pacific, where this is your Western boundary current here extending out. Um, these are what she calls remote effects. This would be the mean. Um, interestingly, she's starting to write about the idea that uh, if you run these simulations over a long enough period of time, that you can actually accumulate the effects of the submesoscale you can start to look at what the, how those effects feed back into large-scale circulation and that that actually has a fairly significant impact on the large-scale circulation that you simulate 
many years out in the future. So something that people haven't been thinking about very much yet, but, uh, but will definitely need to be accounted for. These are the effects of the mesoscale and then the submesoscale. And uh, what you see is that typically the, the mean and the mesoscale kind of tend to balance out, but the submesoscale can be very important in these regions where you have strong fronts, strong boundary currents. Um, also in these regions where you have deep mixed layers. Um, a lot of these effects scale with mixed layer depth. They become more energetic with deeper mixed layers. So I've got a little bit of time left. What I'm gonna do is transition to some work that we've done, uh, a variety of things looking at the submesoscale. I'll start with this, which is the North Atlantic Bloom Experiment, which Mary Jane Perry, Eric DeSauro, and I, and Katja Fennel did in 2008. This was an attempt to do an autonomous study of the North Atlantic Spring Bloom using gliders and floats, but importantly, also using ships. And uh, I can talk at length about why the ships, but suffice to say, the ships are absolutely critical. Um, as Doug pointed out, there are things that you just can't measure with these autonomous platforms and sensors right now. You can build really nifty proxies if you go out and measure those things and you connect them with the things you can measure with light and electricity. And then you can really make some hay, but you have to do both things. So the idea is we deployed before the bloom, we followed a patch through the bloom. So we essentially tried to eliminate a lot of the vective effects by moving in this Lagrangian frame and just follow the temporal evolution of that patch through the blooming period. Um, here you see the bloom, right? You see this big increase in chlorophyll concentration, a crash, which is associated with the exhaustion of silicate rather than nitrate. Um, you, we saw this reflected in chlorophyll and backscattered and all the things you would expect. Um, but the interesting part about this was that the bloom was connected with, with the onset of stratification, as we expected. But that onset of stratification was not connected with the onset of solar warming. It was still cooling when the mixed layer restratified. So the question is what really initiated the stratification? So I said I would give you a third explanation for how these things happen. This is the third one. And that is uh, mixed layer eddies, essentially, one of the submesoscale processes we've been talking about. And one way to think about this is that if you, um, during the wintertime, if you're in one of these areas, you see very deep mixed layers, but horizontal variability. So you've essentially got density contrast in the horizontal, and they're standing up. And the mixing, the wind-driven mixing, is acting to, to maintain those contrasts. So it's acting to drive the mixed layers deep, uh, both through convection and also through the, depending on the direction the wind is blowing, that can transport, can move heavy water over light water, which again drives more convection. Maintains these deep, deep mixed layers, but as, as soon as you relax the winds or you relax the surface heating a little bit, or surface cooling, excuse me, you don't have to warm, but as soon as you relax those things, the mixed layer is going to want, want to slump. Those density gradients are gonna to wanna to go from the vertical to the, to the horizontal. It's kind of the, the dam break problem, if you will. Right, you've got two fluids of different densities. With a barrier, you remove the barrier, the heavy fluid goes under the light fluid, right? This is what happens in the ocean. Um, but here, that's happening by way of mixed layer eddies. Uh, one way to think about that is the, the effect of those eddies scales um, by the, the mixed layer depth and the horizontal buoyancy gradient or density gradient. The, the processes that are acting to mix, surface cooling and wind forcing, are acting to, uh, to counter the effect of the mixed layer eddies. And we can look at what the, uh, how, how the cooling has to weaken or how much wind forcing has to change to, um, before, they, before they lose and the mixed layer eddies win. And what we find is that nine, minus 90 watts per square meter, so uh, still cooling but weaker than typical wintertime cooling is enough for the mixed layer eddies to win for the surface layer to restratify, or a weakening of the wind stress, or a reversal of the wind stress in a way that blows the light fluid over 
heavy fluid will do this. And what we saw in the, in the spring bloom was this. Um, these are density profiles, and they go from pre-bloom in the blues to post-bloom in the reds. And what you see is that pre-bloom, the density profile is, is fairly vertical, right, fairly uniform. And then we go to uniform stratification. And then we go to a period where it's very strongly stratified at the surface layer, and the stratification hasn't changed very much below. If we divide this into two, two regions, upper 100 meters in the solid line, and the 100 to 300 meters below in the dashed line, what we see is that stratification sets in in two phases. The whole water column, and actually down to about five to 700 meters, if we looked a bit deeper, starts to develop stratification at about the same rate at the start of this period. And then later, the surface stratification takes off and the deeper stratification kind of chugs along at the rate it had been going at. The chlorophyll bloom, the phytoplankton bloom, is initiated at the start of this uniform stratification through the water column. This is the, uh, is the period before the surface heat flux changes sign. This period where the surface takes off is when the surface heat flux starts to warm. So we're seeing the, the, the stratification beginning before the surface heat flux changes, uh, changes sign. Um, what we can see is from model results, if we look at winds and surface heat flux, um, a weakening of the winds, actually here a reversal of the winds and a weakening, and a, a weakening of the, the surface cooling, drive a, drive a model response that is essentially identical to the observed response. So we get a, an earlier onset of stratification, earlier onset of the bloom. If we run the model without the, the effect of the mixed layer eddies, so we remove the horizontal density gradients that allow those eddies to, to have an effect, we get a later onset of stratification, later onset of the bloom. Um, this is 20 to 30 days. So in the, the phenological standpoint, the timing of the, the onset of the phytoplankton versus the, the predators, um, that's a pretty big difference. It's going to have an impact on the, uh, on the system. The other convenient thing about this explanation is that it helps us explain why the bloom might be patchy because that stratification drives scales that are similar to the, to the patch scale. The mixed layer eddies have scales of, of kilometers similar to the patch scale, um, the kinds of, of structures that they set up, particularly when they're strained out by the, the mesoscale eddies, give us those sorts of scales. And I'm just about out of time, so I'm gonna skip over these things, but these are, these are other things that we've been looking at, symmetric instability, which is a, uh, another, another way of rapidly exchanging fluid with the interior of the water column. Um, we've got measurements of it from, from several different systems now. It's associated with negative potential vorticity. Again, you get this rapid exchange and you get very, very elevated mixing rates, very elevated rates of turbulence at the, at the front during symmetric instability. Um, other kinds of patterns, some mesoscale turbulence. So these are the, these patterns of a, of, of a very strong um, sort of cyclonic vorticity embedded in a weak anticyclonic background. You see this is uh, instabilities that are being strained out by existing mesoscale eddy field. Again, these are the kinds of patterns that are, are very testable predictions and things that we, we believe might actually have an impact on the, uh, on the biogeochemistry. And so to conclude, um, and a lot of this is going to echo what, what Doug has, has just said, um, what you see is we've got a very broad range of spatial and temporal scales we're worried about here, right? We've gone from, from being worried about microstructure, small-scale turbulence, and how it impacts aggregation 
and, and predator-prey encounter rates to, uh, to the general circulation and how that affects the stratification and ventilation of the oceans and how that impacts, uh, impacts CO2 uptake. How do you scale up? If we're making measurements, we can't typically measure over all those scales. How do we make the right measurements to be able to scale up from the, the smaller scale measurements that we have to make to develop this understanding to the larger scale measurements that actually allow us to make meaningful predictions of what's going to happen? That, that, that's a kind of tough problem um, and one that has to be addressed at all scales. It's an observational problem, it's a modeling problem. Um, from the observational end, one of the things I worry about a lot is how we maintain persistence. Um, you know, you, you look at things like um, the Berenfield results on the, on the, the dilution and, and decoupling hypothesis. And in order to really test that in a, a, a very meaningful way, it's going to take persistent measurements over the course of not just one annual cycle, but many annual cycles to get a good test in some pretty ugly environments, right? So, so we need to be able to do those things. We need to be able to capture baselines so that we can tell when we're seeing decadal shifts. You know, I worry that right now we tend to rely on empirical proxies a lot to do things, and yet we're relying on those proxies at a time when the environment's changing. So by relying on those proxies, we miss the very change that we're trying to measure. So all these things are wrapped up in being able to make these measurements. We physicists have it really easy. Um, you know, we're pretty happy when we get temperature and salinity, velocity as well. Um, all those things to be measured with electricity and, uh, and sound and a little bit of light sometimes. Uh, the biogeochemistry and the, the biology are much harder. The sensors are starting to catch up, but, but in order to do these things, we're going to have to be able to measure those parameters at the same kinds of scales we measure the, the physics. Doug's made the plug for the combination of process experiments um, along with these very sustained measurements. I, I would echo that very strongly. Uh, those are desperately needed, um, both for the models and to, to, uh, to improve our, our understanding of how the remote sensing applies. Right, how can we apply the remote sensing results in, in more meaningful ways? And uh, that's what I've got. Thank you. <laughs>